Chapter 21, Part 2 of The Three Hostages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Three Hostages by John Buchan. Part 2, 5 p.m. to about 7.30 p.m. It was a good hour before he came. I had guessed rightly. He had made the deduction I was hoping for. He was following the deer toward the gap, assuming I was on the Macrae side. I was in a rushy hollow at a junction of the main ridge of the spur I have mentioned. I could see him clearly as, with immense circumspection, in the use of every scrape of cover, he had made his way up the quarry. Once he was over the watershed, I would command him from higher ground and have the wind to my advantage. I had some hope now, for I ought to be able to keep him on the hill till the light failed, when my superior local knowledge would come to my aid. He must be growing tired, I reflected, for he had far more ground to cover. For myself, I felt that I could go on forever. That might have been the course of events, but for a second sheep. Sir Deard had always been noted for possessing a few sheeps, even on its high rocks. Infernal, tattered outlaws, strays originally from some decent flock, but now, to all intents, a new species. Unclassified by science, how they lived and bred I knew not, but there was a legend of many a good stock ruined by their diabolical cunning. I heard something between a snort and a whistle behind me, and screwed my head around, and saw one of these confounded animals poised on a rock and looking my direction. It could see me perfectly, too, for on that side I had no cover. I lay like a mouse watching Medina. He was about half a mile off, almost on top of the quarry, and had halted for a rest and a spy. I prayed fervently that he would not see the sheep. He heard it. The brute started its whistling and coughing, and a novice could have seen that it suspected something and knew that something was. I observed him get his glass on my lair, though from the place where he was he could see nothing but rushes. Then he seemed to make up his mind suddenly and disappeared from view. I knew what he was after. He had dropped into a scar which would take him to the skyline and enable him to come down on me from above while he himself would be safe from my observation. There was nothing to do but to clear out. The spur dropping to the rescue seemed to me the best chance. So I started off, crouching and crawling, to get round the nose of it and on the steep glenward face. It was a miserable job, till I had turned the corner, for I expected every moment a bullet in the back. Nothing happened, however, and soon I was slithering down awesome slabs to an insecure ledge of heather. I am a fairly experienced mountaineer, a lover of rock, but I dislike vegetation mixed up with a climb, and I had too much of it now. 
There was perhaps a thousand feet of that spur, and I think I must hold the speed record for its descent. Scratched, bruised, and breathless, I came to an anchor on the bed of skis, with the infant rescue tumbling below me and beyond it. A quarter mile off, the black cliffs of the Pinnacle Ridge. But what was my next step to be? The position was reversed. Medina was above me with a rifle, and my own weapon was useless. He must find out the road I had taken, and would be after me like a flame. It was no good going down the hill. In the open ground, he would get the chance of twenty shots. It was no good sticking to the spur or the adjacent ridge, for cover was bad. I could not hide for long in the quarry. Then I looked to the pinnacle ridge, and considered that, for once I got into those dark coilers, I might be safe. The psalmist had turned to the hills for his help. I had better look to the rocks. I had a quarter mile of open to cross, and a good deal more if I was to reach the ridge at a point of easy ascent. There were chimneys in front of me, deep black gashes, but my recollection of them was that they had looked horribly difficult and had been plentifully supplied with overhangs. Supposing I had got into one of them and stuck, Medina would have me safe enough, but I couldn't wait to think, with an ugly cold feeling in my stomach. Supposing I got into one of them and stuck, Medina would have me safe enough, but I couldn't wait to think. With an ugly cold feeling in my inside, I got into the ravine of the burn after a long drink from the pool. I started downstream, keeping close to the right-hand bank, which mercifully was high and dotted with rowan saplings. And as I went, I was always turning my head to see behind and above me what I feared. I think Medina, who of course did not know about my rifle, may have suspected a trap, for he came on slowly, and when I caught sight of him, it was not on the spur. I had descended, but farther up the quarry. Two things I now realized. One was I could not make the easy end of the pinnacle ridge without exposing myself on some particularly bare ground. The other was that to my left in the ridge was a deep gully which looked climbable. Moreover, the foot of that gully was not a hundred yards from the burn and the mouth was so deep that a man could find shelter as soon as he entered it. For a moment I could not see Medina. I don't think he had yet caught sight of me. There was a trickling of water coming down from the gully to the burn that gave me an apology for cover. I ground my nose into the flow moss and let the water trickle down my neck as I squirmed my way up, praying hard that the enemy's eyes might be sealed. I think I had got about halfway when a turn gave me a view of the quarry, and there was Medina halted and looking towards me. By the mercy of Providence, my boots were out of sight, and my head a little lower than my shoulders, so that I suppose, among the sand and the gravel and rushes, 
It must be hard to detect. He had used his telescope. I think he must have spotted me, though I'm not certain. I saw him staring. I saw him half raise his rifle to his shoulder while I heard my heart thump. Then he lowered his weapon and moved out of sight. Two minutes later, I was inside the gully, the place like a cave with a sandy floor, and then came a steep pitch of rock while the sides narrowed into a chimney. This was not very difficult. I swung myself up into the second stoey and found that the cleft was so deep that the back wall was about three yards from the opening so that I climbed in almost complete darkness and in complete safety from view. This went on for about 50 feet and then, after a rather awkward chalkstone, I came to a fork. The branch on the left looked homeless, while that on the right seemed to offer some chances. But I stopped to consider, for I remembered something. I remembered that this was the chimney which I had prospected three weeks ago, before when I climbed the Pinnacle Ridge. I had prospected it from above, and I come to the conclusion that, while the left fork might be climbed, the right was impossible, or nearly so, for modestly as it began, it ran out into a fearsome crack on the face of the cliff, and did not become a chimney again till after a hundred feet of unclimbable rotten granite. So I tried the left fork, which looked horribly unpromising. The first trouble was a chalk stone, which I managed to climb around, and then the confounded thing widened and became perpendicular. I remember that I had believed a way could be found by taking to the right-hand face in an excitement of the climb. I had forgotten all precautions. It simply did not occur to me that this face route might bring me in sight of the eyes which at all costs I must avoid. But it was not an easy business, for there was an extreme poverty of decent holds. But I have done worse pitches in my time, and had I not had a rifle to carry, I had no sling. Might have thought less of it. Very soon, I was past the worst, and saw my way to returning to the chimney, which had once more become reasonable. I had stopped for a second to prospect my route, with my foot on a sound ledge and my right elbow crooked round a jag of rock and my left hand, which held the rifle, stretched out so that my fingers could test the soundness of a certain hold. Suddenly I felt the power go out of those fingers. The stones seemed to crumble and splinter flew into my eye. There was a crashing of echoes, which drowned the noise of my rifle as it clattered down into the precipice. I remember looking at my hand-spread eagle against the rock and wondered why it looked so strange. The light was beginning to fail, so it must have been half-past seven. Seven-thirty and onwards. Had anything of the sort happened to me during an ordinary climb, I should, beyond doubt, have lost my footing, with the shock and fallen. But being pursued, I suppose my nerves were keyed to a perpetual expectancy, and I did not slip. The fear of a second bullet saved my life. In a trice, 
I was back in the chimney, and the second bullet spent itself harmlessly on the granite. Mercifully, it was now easier going. Honest knee and back work, which I could manage in spite of my shattered fingers. I climbed feverishly with a cold sweat on my brow, but every muscle was in order, and I knew I could make no mistake. The chimney was deep, and the ledge of rock hid me from my enemy below. Presently I squeezed through a gap, swung myself with my right hand and my knees to a shelf, and saw that the difficulties were over. A shallow gully filled with screes led up the crest of the ridge, and was the place I had looked on three weeks before. I examined my left hand, which was a horrid mess. The top of my thumb was blown off, and the two top joints of my middle and third fingers were smashed to a pulp. I felt no pain in them, though they were dripping blood, but I had a queer numbness in my left shoulder. I managed to bind the hand up in the handkerchief, where it married a gory bundle. Then I tried to collect my wits. Medina was coming up the chimney after me. He knew I had no rifle. He was, as I had heard, an expert cragsman, and he was the younger man by at least ten years. My first thought was to make for the upper part of the Pinnacle Ridge, and try to hide or elude him somehow till the darkness. But he could follow me in the transparent northern night. I must soon weaken from loss of blood. I could not hope to put significant distance between us for safety, and he had his deadly rifle. Somewhere in the night, or in the dawning, he would get me. No, I must stay and fight it out. Could I hold the chimney? I had no weapons but stones, but I might be able to prevent a man ascending by those intricate rocks. In the chimney, at any rate, there was cover, and he could not use his rifle. But would he try the chimney? Why should he go round by the lower slopes of the Pinnacle Ridge and come up from above me? It was the dread of his bullets that decided me. My one passionate longing was for cover. I might get him in a place where his rifle was useless, and I had a chance to use my greater muscular strength. I did not care what happened to me, provided I got my hands on him. Behind all my fear and confusion and pain, now there was a cold flurry of rage. So I slipped back into this chimney and descended to where it turned slightly to the left past a nose of rock. Here I had cover. I could peer down into the darkening depths of the great boiler. A purple haze filled the quarry, and the macri tops were like dull amethysts. The sky was a cloudy blue, sprinkled with stars, and mingling with the last flush of sunset was the first tide of the afterglow. At first all was quiet in the gully, and I heard the faint trickling of stones, which are always falling in such a place, and once the croak of a hungry raven. Was my enemy there? Did he know of the easier route up the pinnacle ridge? Would he not assume that if I could climb the cleft he could follow? And would he feel any dread of a man with no gun and a shattered hand? Then far below came a sound I recognized. 
iron hobnails on rock. I began to collect loose stones and made a little pile of such ammunition beside me. I realized that Medina had begun the ascent of the lower pitches. Every breach in the stillness was perfectly clear, the steady scraping in the chimney, the fall of fragment of rock as he surmounted the lower chalk stone, the scraping again as he was forced out onto the containing wall. The light must have been poor, but the road was plain. Of course, I saw nothing of him, for the bulge prevented me, but my ears told me the story. There was silence. I realized that he had come to the place where the chimney forked. I had my stones ready, for I had hoped to get him when he was driven out on the face at the overhang, the spot where I had been when he fired. The sounds began again, and I waited in a desperate, choking calm. In a minute or two would come the crisis. I remember that the afterglow was on Macray tops. And made a pale light in the quarry below. In the cleft, there was still a kind of dim twilight. Any moment, I suspected to see a dark thing in movement fifty feet below, which would be Medina's head. But it did not come. The noise of scraped rock still continued, but it seemed to draw no nearer. Then I realized that I had misjudged the earlier situation. Medina had taken the right-hand fork. He was bound to unless he had made, like me, an earlier reconnaissance. My route in the half-lit light must have looked starkly impossible. The odds were now on my side. No man in the fast-gathering darkness could hope to climb the face of the cliff and rejoin that chimney after its interruption. He would go on till he struck and then it would not be too easy to get back. I reascended my own cleft, for I had a notion that I might traverse across the space between the two forks and find a vantage point of view. Very slowly and painfully for my left arm was beginning to burn like fire in my left shoulder and neck to feel strangely paralyzed. I wriggled across the steep face till I found a sort of ganarme, of rock, beyond which the cliff fell smoothly to the lip of the other fork. The great gully below was now a pit of darkness, but the afterglow still lingered on this upper section, and I saw clearly where Medina's chimney lay, where it narrowed and where it came out. I fixed myself so as to prevent myself from falling, for I feared that I was becoming lightheaded. Then I remembered Angus's rope, got it unrolled, and took a coil around my waist and made a hitch over the ganarme. There was a smothering cry from below, and suddenly came the ring of metal on stone, and then a clatter of something falling. I knew what it meant. Medina's rifle had gone the way of mine and lay now among the boulder at the chimney foot. At last we stood on equal terms, and befogged as my mind was, I saw that nothing now could stand between us and the settlement. It seemed to me that I saw something moving in the half-light. If it was Medina, he had the left chimney and was trying the face, 
the way I knew there was no hope. He would be forced back, and surely would soon realize the folly of it and descend. Now that his rifle had gone, my hatred had ebbed. I seemed only to be watching a fellow mountaineer in a quandary. He could not have been forty feet from me, for I heard his quick breathing. He was striving hard for holds, and the rock must have been rotten, for there was a continuous dropping of fragments, and once a considerable boulder hurtled down the queer. Go back, man, I cried instinctively. Back to the chimney. You can't get further that way. I suppose he heard me, for he made a more violent effort, and I thought I could see him sprawl at a foothold, which he was missing, and then swing out on his hands. He was evidently weakening, for I heard a sob of weariness. If he could not regain the chimney, there was three hundred feet of a fall to the boulders at the foot. Medina, I yelled, I have a rope. I'm going to send it down to you. Get your arm in the loop. I made a noose at the end with my teeth and my right hand, working with a manic's fury. I'll fling it out straight, I cried. Catch it when it falls to you. My cast was good enough, but he let it pass. The rope dangled down to the abyss. Oh, damn it, man, I roared. You can trust me. We'll have it out when I get you safe. You'll break your neck if you hang there. Again I threw, and suddenly the rope tightened. He believed my word, and I think that was the greatest compliment ever paid me in all my days. Now you're held, I cried. I got a belay here. Try and climb back into the chimney. He understood and began to move. But his arms and legs must have been numb with fatigue. For suddenly that happened which I feared. There was a wild slipping and plunging. Then it swung out limply, missing the chimney, right on the smooth wall of the cliff. There was nothing for it but to haul him back. I knew Angus's ropes too well to have any confidence in them, and I only had one good hand. The rope ran through a groove of stone, which I had covered with my coat, and I hoped to work it even with a single arm by moving slowly upwards. I'll pull you up, I yelled, but for God's sake, give me some help. Don't hang on the rope more than you need. My loot was a large one, and I think he had got both arms around it. He was a monstrous weight, limp and dead as a sack, for though I could feel him scraping and kicking at the cliff face, the rock was too smooth for fissures. I held the rope with my feet, planted against boulders, and wrought till my muscles cracked. Inch by inch I was drawing him in, till I realized the danger. My rope was grating on the sharp brink beyond the chimney. It might at any moment be cut like a knife's edge. Medina, my voice must have been like a wild animal's scream. This is too dangerous. I am going to let you down a bit so that you can traverse. There's a sort of ledge down there. For heaven's sakes, go canny with this rope. I slipped the belay from the gnarme, and hideously difficult it was. Then I moved farther down to a little platform near the chimney. This gave me about sixty extra yards. Now, I cried, when I had to let him slip down. A little to your left, do you feel the ledge? He had found some sort 
a foothold, and for the moment there was a relaxation of the strain. The rope swayed to my right toward the chimney, and I began to see a glimmer of hope. Cheer up, I cried. Once in the chimney you're safe. Sing out when you reach it. The answer out of the darkness was a sob. I think giddiness must have overtaken him, or that atrophy of muscle, which is the peril of rock climbing. Suddenly the rope scorched my fingers, and a shock came on my middle, which dragged me to the very end of the abyss. I still believe that I could have saved him if I had the use of both my hands, for I could have guided the rope away from the fatal knife edge. But I knew it was hopeless, but I put every ounce of strength and will into the effort to swing it with its burden to the chimney. He gave me no help, for I think, I hope, that he was unconscious. Next, second, the strands had parted. I fell back with a sound in my ears which I pray thought I may never hear again. The sound of a body rebounding dully from crag to crag, and then a long, soft rumbling of screes like a snowslip. I managed to crawl the few yards to the anchorage of the Granarme before my senses departed. There in the morning, Mary and Angus found me. End of chapter 21, part 2, and end of The Three Hostages by John Buchanan.